Support for this broadcast of Two Rivers 30 Minutes comes in part from a grant from Striffler's Family Funeral Homes. From TubeCityOnline.com, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes, a weekly series of interviews with people making news around the McKeesport area. Produced by Tube City Community Media Incorporated, a nonprofit corporation. I'm Jason Toger, the executive director. On this show, we talk one-on-one with elected officials, community leaders, and others who are trying to make a difference in the Monyoc area. And we also take your questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. Shara McCallum is a poet. She is, in fact, the Poet Laureate for Penn State University. She's also a professor of English at Penn State. She was in our community recently uh, to talk about her new book and also talk about her work with students at Penn State Greater Allegheny Campus in McKeesport. Uh, Good morning, Shara. Good morning, Jason. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for 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 stopping uh, in to talk with us. First things first, I, I was unable to attend your reading at Penn State Greater Allegheny, but how did it go? What kinds of questions did you get from students? Uh, it was wonderful. That was actually, I have to think of the number, but it was maybe my 12th or 13th campus in the Penn State Commonwealth system I have visited. It was the 12th because I was at New Kensington and Fayette also this week, Jason. So um, nearby campuses. And what I find, and this is specific to Greater Allegheny to some extent, but it's really a commentary on the travels and the experience I've had so far. Um, the students are just so incredibly engaged with questions of history and also curious about poetry. Many of them are not themselves poets, not necessarily writing poetry, studying it. But once I speak to them about sources of language that are poetry, you can see that they have a connection to the art form, sometimes even that they don't realize they have. Tell us about your newest book, because I'm not sure that I am completely up to date. What, your, your, what is your newest book? So the title of the book is No Ruined Stone. And it is a book of poems. It's my sixth collection of poetry, books, book of poetry. But unlike others that I've written, this one is a novel in verse. And I say that to explain what I'm about to say about it, which is structurally, individually, it is a series of dramatic monologues and lyric poems voiced principally by people who are not me. Um, And over the arc of the collection, it tells a story. The story is based on the thread of the actual life of the 18th century Scottish poet, Robert Burns. Um, Many people don't even know they know Burns, but once I start singing a little bit of Old Lang Syne at my readings, everybody knows Burns at that moment. Um, Yeah, he lived in the 18th century, wrote poems and songs that survive his his death down to this day. In Scotland, he's an incredibly heralded figure, important to Scottish identity and culture. And really across the world, I think many people revere Burns and his work. Um, What I found out that triggered me writing this book was that he came very close to migrating to Jamaica to work as an overseer on a slave plantation. And I'm from Jamaica. I am myself a mixed race um, Jamaican of of African as well as European descent. My surname is McCallum. And um, this struck a chord with me on many levels. And I'm also a poet, knew Burns' work, loved his work. So I wrote a book really to sit with the questions of history that I think we continue to deal with 
um, the, the resonance and the implication of slavery and colonization still. Um, and also the, the, the narrative question of the book, what would have happened had he gone? We're talking this morning with Shara McCallum. Uh, her new book is No Ruined Stone, or her most recent book is No Ruined Stone. Jesus, you've done six books, I believe, altogether. Yeah. Is that accurate? Okay. Uh, you can find out more information at her website. She is the Poet Laureate of Penn State University and a professor of English. You are at the University Park campus, I would assume? I, I am. That's where I normally am. Okay. This, this semester, I'm everywhere else. Okay. Um, but yes, that's my appointment, is at UP. Let me ask a, a foolish question. How does one become appointed poet laureate for Penn State University? And, and what does being a laureate mean? So that's not a foolish question at all. Um, it is actually a position not specific for poets. So what it is, is a position Penn State has um, for, this is their terminology, you know, senior faculty. And you can, you know, I'm putting this in quotes. People can't see that, but you could. Um, what that means is that, the, the faculty who are maybe farther along in their professional career are appointed to this position and it's specific to faculty who are practitioners in the arts and humanities. Why would Penn State do that? Um, to bring attention. It's supposed to bring attention both to the work of the faculty person who's appointed to the role, but also to bring attention to the art or to the humanistic pursuit that, that person's work represents. So um, that's the purpose of the position. Um, I was appointed because my dean um, nominated me and you go through a process of nomination. Um, there's an interview process, submission of materials. And I spoke about what I would like to do as the, the laureate um, and was then selected and appointed. So that's the more secondary importance I think is that there is a procedure for it, but importantly to me is that Penn State has such a position to begin with. In your teaching at University Park, do you teach the history of poetry? Do you teach the craft of writing uh, verse? Uh, what does your teaching focus on? So I, I teach creative writing mm -hmm. workshops in poetry, but the way that I approach that is to do both of what you just asked. Um, anyone who's worked with me, my students know, I'm deeply interested in history, and that includes the history of poetry. So if we're going to talk about writing a sonnet, you're going to hear me talk a whole lot about the history of that form, how it was, you know, originated in Italian, in, you know, its origins, how it was translated then into English, how it's come down to us as English language poets to use with certain things that we would be best served understanding besides that it's 14 lines. You know, it's good to know things, I think, in order to write well. So I can't separate out the knowledge of poetry from the writing of poetry or the reading of it too, Jason. My students read a lot of poems, lots of books of poetry, um, because as with any art, to practice it is to also love it and to know what the models are that make it possible for you to write it. Shara McCallum is our guest this morning. She has written six <laughs> books. Uh, two of them are available from the University of Pittsburgh Press, the others from Alice James Books. Her most recent book is called No Ruined Stone. It is imagining uh, that Robert Burns, the uh, Scottish poet, um, who actually is quite popular in, in a lot of Western Pennsylvania, we have a lot of Scottish and, and mm -hmm. Irish folks here who have yeah. Bobby Burns Nights. Yeah. So so is is widely known, I think, in, in Western Pennsylvania, certainly, but imagines uh 
as you put it, it is a novel told in verse form uh, that imagines that that he traveled to Jamaica. And in in your imagining of the story, does he actually become an overseer of slaves? He does. Um, In my book, Burns lives the last 10 years of his life in Jamaica. So this is based on a thread of his actual history. Um, In 1786, when his first book was about to be published, he was fleeing a series of bad love affairs um, and um, financial ruin. Um, And he had signed a contract to go to Jamaica to work in the employment of one of these two brothers. The two brothers were from the same area of, of Scotland, Burns Hales, which is Ayrshire in the lowlands. And they owned a plantation um, a sugarcane plantation, um, which the labor was enslaved Africans. Um, and he had contracted himself to the Douglases to go and work there as their bookkeeper. Um, he booked passage three times to go. And what ultimately most historians and Burns scholars now believe stopped him from going is that his first book of poems sold out incredibly well. So what I did, I was struck by the dissonance that this created in me as a lover of his poetry. And I, and I think in many ways he holds to the beliefs of many men of the enlightenment and egalitarian beliefs in democracy, but he was yet prepared to go and imbricate, imbricate himself in, in this institution. And so I really grappled with that contradiction and complexity and wrote the book to deal with that entangled history that I personally carry that Jamaica, the history of Jamaica has replete. Scotland is coming to deal with its involvement in slavery. Um, Many Scots, it is a painful thing to confront because for many, many a year, I think it was easier to think it was just the English, um, you know, to allow just the English Mm -hmm. to have taken the, the fall for this. And so, I'm writing out of a series of complex threads of history that I think I per, you know, perceive as still resonant in our present, why I'm still attached to thinking about the past. We are, have a break coming up here, but I, I, I do want to get a little bit more into your childhood and about your coming to the United mm-hmm. States. You mentioned you were born in Jamaica. Your bio says mm-hmm. Kingston, Jamaica. That's correct, yeah. Uh, And you came to the United States when you were uh, nine years old. What brought you and your family to the United States? It's a very complex question. Um, Like many migrants, um, my family left Jamaica because um, we were in some ways feeling forced. There was a lot of violence and civic unrest in the country. I'm born in Kingston in 1972. Mm -hmm. And the decade of my childhood there is one of this period of slavery, notwithstanding one of the most violent in Jamaica's history, everything to do with colonization and trying to overthrow it. Um, so this is this is just one of the things that I mentioned that this book is a history I've long lived with. Um, but I migrated with my mother's parents to Miami, and then my father died, and then my mother came a year later. So the circumstances of my migration were also part of this experience of rupture that I think many migrants and immigrants carry. That, you know, um, if you feel as if you are fleeing a country and you're going somewhere else for your feeling that this is a better life and for safety, 
it isn't always possible to carry everything with you, sometimes even family members. Let's pause right there. Uh, when we Let's pick it back up there. I, I want to ask you what you remember uh, of those early years and uh, also your early exposure to verse and, and poems, okay? Sure. Broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Support for this broadcast comes from Strifler's Family Funeral Homes. Since 1866, Strifler's has provided compassionate professional memorial services for families in White Oak, McKeesport, Dravosburg, Portview, and the surrounding areas. Strifler's offers comprehensive pre-planning services and aftercare. And through its affiliated company, Design Monuments, Strifler's also provides permanent markers and memorials crafted in stone, bronze, and other high-quality materials. Learn more at strifler's.com or call 4 one two six seven eight six one nine one. What do you remember? I mean, you were you were very young when you left, but that still that trauma of of growing up in in a time of of revolution and unrest must have stayed with you and must have made quite an impact on you as a young person. Yeah, I mean, I remember quite a bit actually, and I think if you each anyone listening to this thinks about who you are when you're almost nine years old. You're actually a sentient being. You have a sense of who you are by then. Um, you have consciousness, essentially, and you think of yourself as a person. So I think I had um, a decade, probably, of trying to become, in some ways, very American, which is not an atypical immigrant story. No, that's very typical, I think, yeah. Or it occurred to me that I couldn't quite be that and that I needed to figure out how to hold on to the memory of who, who Shara had been before this occurred. And so into that flooded a lot of memory and my continual pursuit of it. Um, the fact that my father was also um, absent, I think, played a role in this as well. He died, as I mentioned earlier, when we migrated. So I think I was really tipped in the direction of trying to reconstruct and hold on to the past as a way to also hold on to not just a version of who I was, but also my father as well. And so... Um, that's the that's the answer really to me in terms of what do I remember is fragments, but a lot that I then began to and have systematically pieced together to make of these fragments and ruptures a whole self and a whole sense of the, the history of who I am and my family. And now by extension also really have gone even farther than that with this book into the 18th century and the 19th century, you know, periods I did not exist to really try to reconstruct the past, to be, to understand who we are in the present. What was your first exposure to poetry? I mean, and poems and songs and rhymes are one of the first things that kids learn as they acquire language. And it's, of course, it's one of our oldest art forms as human beings, right? Even cultures that don't have written language have rhymes and poems and songs. What was your first exposure? Yeah, it's the oldest. Um, My first exposure was exactly as you're describing, actually, in the origins of poetry. So I had no idea I was going to be a poet when I was a child. Let me just be clear about that. So, But looking back now as a poet, I can see what I suspect are many of the origins and sources of language that I was attached to. Nursery rhymes you've mentioned, songs you've mentioned. My parents and um, I were members of the 12 tribes of Israel. I was actually raised in Jamaica as a Rastafarian. And so I was in this community where my mother in particular read us a chapter a day of the King James translation of the Hebrew Bible. Incredibly poetic. 
densely imagistic, full of repetition and sound. I heard tons of language that was English, Patwa, everything in between, right? That these are the, the languages spoken in Jamaica. I heard stories because being raised in this community, storytelling actually was part of my upbringing. So all of these sources, I think, came back to me in the same way as I'm saying memory of events, narrative, sensory impressions of Jamaica that, that I had stored up. And so it's as much the sounds of language that I'm responsive to as a poet as what, when you put them together, they conjure in terms of image, which then always pushes to become metaphor in a poem and sensory experience, which is also what image is. So I think that is my answer for where my origins of poetry reside is absolutely in my past, in my childhood. Who were some poets who were influential to you growing up? I mean, obviously you've written about uh, Robert Burns, but who who were maybe some others? Well, many, um, but I would say the British romantics at large. You know, I was one of those kinds of students who maybe because of my age coming up in the, you know, 90s in school as an English literature major, I read a lot of British literature, including far earlier periods, even Chaucer, Milton, Canterbury Tales. Sure. So again, you know, I had that exposure as a young person in my teens, um, but American idioms too. Um, So Robert Frost, um, you know, early Emily Dickinson was really important to me early on. So before, again, I knew I would be a poet. Who was I being exposed to is what I'm pointing out. Um, once I became aware of poetry as something somebody like me could do, I sought out more and more Caribbean writers, you know, Black writers, women writers, writers of color from other countries. I mean, I began to be more deliberate, but I've always been interested in multiple traditions of poetry, even including that which I didn't fully even understand. I was like Chaucer, for example, I think was preparing me to be able to read Scots, which I needed to do to write this poem, you know? And I was yeah. like 18 years old, not thinking about yeah. being a poet or that this was useful, but loved just being like, I can just read this strange, this strange sounding language and understand it. It's Anglo-Saxon, Middle English. One in a braille with his suit is a suit. It's a lot like Scots, basically. They have the same kind of moments where they're branching off parts, you know, Anglo-Saxon is branching off and the English we speak in the United States and the lowlands areas, England, otherwise, that's different. But in this moment of, you know, Scots and Middle English are really very huge to Anglo-Saxon. So, I, th- I mean, this is me going off into my that's like, okay. nerdy English lit person <laughs> now. Sorry. That's How much do we gain by hearing a poem read aloud? versus just reading the words on the page. I think it's a different experience. It absolutely is. And I would say anyone who hears this poem can go and find it online. It's easy to find this Nova and Stone. I'm going to read Jason. And they can answer the question for themselves. But I would also advocate even people who are not poets. um, I, I love memorizing poems that aren't mine. And that is something that is about the recitation of it. The ability to have it in my mouth, in my ear, 
in my body coming out of me, it is a way to connect me to the orality of the poem. And my mind, I can't do that. And my mind's ear can't do that. So I have to say the poem to hear it in all of its dimensions. And again, this isn't about whether you're a good reader or not a good reader of poetry. This is what does it do for us when we read even a poem. And I think it's a very different experience than just reading it with the eye and the mind on the page. I, I am going to impose on you now and ask um, sure. if you wouldn't mind reading the, the opening poem from New, No Ruin Stone. Happily. And I will just say before I read it that the you of the poem is Robert Burns I'm addressing. And I'm the I, Shara. It's not the case in much of this book that that's true. And it's not a given in poetry that the speaker is the poet. But this one is me. Um, no Ruin Stone. You saturate the sight of those who come after, poets and painters alike. Your words invade my mind's listening, manacle my tongue when I try to speak. On all, I backward cast my eye and fear and cannot see. Who would I have been to you? What stone in the ruined house of the past? In this world, I am unloosed, belonging to no country, no tribe, no clan, not African, not Scotland. And you, voice that stalks my waking and dreaming, you, more myth then man cannot unmake history. So why am I here resurrecting you to speak when your silence gulfs centuries? Why do I find myself on your doorstep knocking when I know the dead will never answer? Shara McCallum reading from her new book or recent book. I don't know that it's, is it? It's fairly new. It fairly, just came out in the U.S. in August. In August, uh, No Ruined Stone, which is about the poet Robert Burns, who uh, at one point in his life uh, thought of going to Jamaica to become an overseer of slaves and changed his mind. We will be back in 30 seconds. You are tuned to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport. You're listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, a production of Tube City Community Media Incorporated. If you've got an idea for someone who you'd like us to interview or a question or comment, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. You are teaching creative writing. You're teaching poetry. I have found from my own experiments that uh, writing a poem is easier said than done. Um what makes a poet? What makes in in your students that you're teaching? Uh, when do you spot sort of that? Yes, this person understands the craft, and they are going to go on to to write more poetry. Yeah, um, everyone is a poet. That's the first thing I'm going to say, Jason. Okay. Um, the question is whether or not you keep writing it and reading it, and so um, how we understand language preternaturally, that makes you a poet. 
Um, how you forget the associations of this equals that, that's the habit of thinking metaphorically, um, which is to say, not the, the scripted patterns of language is for only information or only meaning one thing, but that it can invite the mind to see many possibilities, yeah? So those are some things that I think we all have the capacity for in us. And what poets are doing is tuning their ear and their observations of self as it engages with the world to have that distilled through language. That's what I really try to convey to students is that, you know, we all have this capacity in us. If everybody is listening and wants, I will give you an exercise to try and you see what you think. Take a line that you like. Maybe it's from a book that you've been reading. Maybe it's some dialogue that you've heard. Write it at the top of the page. It has to be a line. When I say a line, a string of language, okay? Maybe it's a question. Um, maybe it's just a phrase or even one word. Write it at the top of the page, set a timer for five minutes and allow your mind to write associatively anything that comes. Don't judge, don't lift the pen. That's the beginning, I think, of writing poetry is letting those kinds of sound, thought, feeling, imagistic, sensory associations come into language through some other place that's triggering it for you. And for me, it's always language that I'm hearing. I often hear what I describe as voices. And I know that's the voice of a poem. And I'm writing to figure out who is this that's speaking and what do they care about? Um, so that's an exercise, Jason, as an answer to your question. I like it. I, we are just about out of time, but I kind of want to circle back to where we started, which was sure. your recent visit to McKeesport, New Kensington, and Uniontown. Mm. You have visited, I believe you said, 12 of the Commonwealth campuses uh, of Penn State. Um, what are you learning 14, about? 14, but who's counting? Oh, is it 14? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Next week will be 15. Next yeah. week will be 15. I'm, I'm excited because I get to see them all. This is fun. Well, what, what are you learning about Pennsylvania, and, and what are you seeing uh, as a poet? Uh, of Pennsylvania. Yeah, so I've lived in Pennsylvania for 18 years. Um, so I think what I continue to learn about Pennsylvania is how many towns there are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed. I think for myself, I thought I know, I, I thought I knew this state, you know? Um, there are so many towns, each really with quite distinctive character. I don't have enough time to speak to all of those. Um, one of the things that I've enjoyed is actually being here and doing this in the fall. So because I'm getting to drive, and this was deliberate. Again, I've lived here for 18 years. I'm visiting the majority of the campuses in the fall for a very good reason. I know what's coming next. <laughs> and I don't <laughs> want to be driving all over the state in winter, okay? But I love the fall yeah. in Pennsylvania. I love the hills, and I love the colors in the trees that I'm getting to go through. You know, so this is a superficial answer, but part of what I think attracts us to a place is beauty and seeing it. And of course, you can look at Pennsylvania and see the scars of its history because those are there too. Yeah. Um, you see everywhere, all these small towns I drive through, the inequities are there, absolutely. But there's also beauty in that, even in that. And so I feel very, very privileged, I guess, to be able to meet so many 
students who are from these towns, you know, especially teaching at UP, I don't always get those conversations that I'm having. Um, I'm learning about the places I am in. I'm asking people, tell me something about the history of your town or yeah. this place. And, and that's really beautiful. Shara McCallum's new book, she has written six books. Her <laughs> new book is No Ruined Stone. You can find out more information at her website, sharamccallum.com. Uh, you can also get her book from Alice James Press, or Alice James Books, rather. Uh, she <laughs> also has two books available from the University of Pittsburgh Press. She is a professor of English at Penn State University Park Campus, and she is Penn State's Poet Laureate. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us this morning. It was a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. And thank you all for listening this week to Two Rivers 30 Minutes broadcast from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport. On Radio 81 WEDO, 1550 and 101.1 WZUM, the Pittsburgh Jazz Channel, and Tube City Online Radio. So long for now. You've been listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, copyright Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Opinions expressed on this program are not those of Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Listener support makes this program possible. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our website at tubecityonline.com and click on the donate link. You can also get a free subscription to this program and other podcasts at our website using Apple's iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you've got a question or comment, we hope you'll write to us. Our address is Tube City Community Media Incorporated, P.O. Box 94, McKeesport, PA, 15134. You can email us at TubeCityTiger at gmail.com or call us at area code 412-614-9659. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at TubeCityOnline. Online.